Hey everyone, Eric here. Just before we get to the show today, I want to let you know about the big changes here on our team. We've now got six editors in both Asia and Africa producing some great journalism every day on what the Chinese are doing throughout the developing world. No one provides this kind of daily coverage about the Global South from the Global South. And that's why governments, think tanks, and investors around the world read our newsletter every day and rely on our website. If you'd like to find out what they're reading and get a truly unique perspective on China and the world, subscribe today. Subscriptions are super affordable and you get 30 days free just to try it out. So go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, all week we have been playing the game, where in the world is Xi Jinping going? And it is a very interesting game because every single day, we're getting new rumors, new speculations about where Xi Jinping is going to make his grand re-entry onto the world stage after almost three years of not leaving the country. So let me just back it up a little bit for a couple of weeks. For those of you who haven't been following this, it's been really very interesting. And I urge everybody on Twitter to just relax, step back, push the mouse away, and stop forwarding rumors that are unsubstantiated. Let's start with... Saudi Arabia. So Martin Chuloff, the Guardian correspondent in the Middle East, he got picked up, uh, well, he picked up a rumor that Xi Jinping was going to come to Riyadh last week. Xi Jinping never went to Riyadh last week. My take on this was that Martin got played by the Saudis who really wanted to try and push the issue. It did not happen. Then we heard from the Wall Street Journal that Xi Jinping was going to go to the G20 summit in Bali and then potentially up to the APEC summit in Thailand, where he would, on the sidelines of that, have a meeting with Biden. Then word started to come out again from the Wall Street Journal that was then picked up by Indian media and it just created a flurry of coverage and speculation throughout Indian Twitter and Indian media that Xi Jinping is going to go to Uzbekistan, and he is going to then have a meeting on the sidelines of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit with Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India. So lots of speculation. The Chinese Foreign Ministry, for their part, is saying nothing. So we don't have any confirmations. What is very important to consider here is that the 20th Party Congress is coming up in November. A lot of people speculate that it's highly unlikely that Xi will leave the country before the 20th Party Congress when he is coronated to a third unprecedented term in office. The G20 summit and APEC come after the 20th Party Congress, so that makes the most sense. However, it is just very important to recognize that we just don't know. The one thing we do know, Kobus, is that when Xi Jinping re-emerges onto the international stage, it is going to be a much more tenser, much more 
chillier environment in those conference rooms with the other presidents and prime ministers, particularly from the G7 countries, who've had these fora to themselves for the past two or three years. Now, when he goes to Bali, if he goes to Bali and then on to APEC, the situation is going to be very different. And I wrote earlier this week that it's really unfortunate for the developing world that this is happening right now, because what's going to end up happening, in my view, is that at the G20, we're going to see, for example, great power competition and great power rivalry will dominate many of the critical issues facing global South countries, namely debt relief, COVID control, all of these other issues. And it seems like it's going to be much more difficult for global South and developing countries to get their priorities up on the agenda. What do you think, Kobus? Yeah, I think there's probably probably some truth there. You know, I mean, they, they had problems getting their, their problems on the agenda a while before already, you know. So, the, you know, at, at the last um, G20 ministerial meeting, there was there was very little discussion of, of debt relief, for example. Um, so, you know, so this isn't exactly new, but, but I, I think the, the climate will be so, so kind of fraught and toxic, um, that particularly considering that, that Vladimir, Vladimir Putin is also supposed to be attending that same G20 summit. So I can imagine that everything will be hijacked by, by that, by that reality. Well, let's get a perspective now on the current state of great power competition, especially in light of both Putin and Xi coming back onto the stage again, maybe even together, as Kobus indicated, at the G20. And there's a great new book that's out, America's Great Power Opportunity, Revitalizing U.S. Foreign Policy to Meet the Challenges of Strategic Competition. It's by our good friend Ali Wine, who is a senior analyst at the Eurasia Group and an old friend of the show. Ali, a very good morning to you and welcome back to the program. Eric, thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege to be back and talking with you. It's wonderful to have you. Congratulations on the fantastic book. Thank I can't you. recommend it enough for everybody to to read. It's essential now, especially the timing this year is so interesting because of the war in Ukraine, because of the tension with the, the Russians. And then now we have this question of Xi Jinping re-emerging. Before we get into the book, let's get your take on how you think the situation is going to change once the Chinese president steps back onto the stage again. Absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll echo, and not just because we're talking, but I, I genuinely agree with your your assessment. I do think that his presence, his his physical presence in these critical uh, fora, is going to make a significant difference in 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 Chinese diplomacy. And it's difficult to overstate. I mean, I mean leaving aside just the realm of of geopolitics, I mean, even in our just our day to day personal lives and professional lives, uh, think about yes. Zoom and WebEx and Teams, of they're, they're wonderful platforms, and they've enabled uh, individuals to do far more than, than they had previously thought possible in terms of you know, working from home, communicating with one another from home. But there is invariably a certain uh, intimacy, a certain humanity that is lost when we are engaging with one another principally virtually. And there is, it follows, a certain intimacy that is restored when we reconvene in person. And I think that 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 fact certainly applies uh, in the realm of diplomacy. And it's difficult to overstate the the corrosive impact on sort of China's image in the world, Chinese diplomacy, China's uh, soft powers, uh, on and on. Uh, the impact on all of those phenomena by the absence, the the relative absence, physical absence, uh, not just of Xi Jinping, but also of many of, of Xi's top advisors in these prominent fora. And the result has been that for the better part of the, the pandemic, so now we're talking about about two and a half years, at major fora, 
uh, Xi Jinping has been absent, or if he's been he's either he's been physically absent. In some cases, he's been virtually absent. Uh, but to the extent that he's participated, he's done so virtually. So even if you make it doesn't matter how compelling your remarks might be, but if you present them virtually and then you're no longer present, um, the real you know the real substance of these you know meetings takes place uh, on the margins. It takes place on the sidelines. So you have a formal program. But it's in the the gaps during the formal program. So during a coffee break, during a lunch break, when you can converse with your interlocutors privately uh, and candidly. And when you're not present in those sort of private, candid, off-the-record conversations, you really lose out on critical opportunities to burnish your image, to present your viewpoints, and so forth. So it, it's all a long-winded way, sort of a long-winded preamble to to affirming your point, which is that I do think, one, that his physical presence at these meetings will help China to uh, to 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 burnish its uh, image, to strengthen its diplomatic profile, to convey its viewpoints, and obviously it's going to raise tensions with it's going to raise tensions with I think the United States first and foremost. It's also going to raise tensions though with the other members of the G7. So I imagine that. On balance, it will be a, a plus when it comes to China's ability to make greater inroads uh, in the in what's broadly, I guess, considered the global south. But certainly, his presence there will will create a much chillier atmosphere in his engagements with uh, G seven counterparts. So, in, in your book, you you uh, you grapple with with some of the foreign policy challenges to the United States, particularly in you know in the face of the rise of China, but also the 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 current crisis, which has led to it uh, to. Russia becoming a lot more prominent on on the global stage again, so you know, taking for for you know, kind of putting a pin in, in in the question of 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 whether Xi Jinping will personally show up or not, in what kind of state do you think the United States will be going to these kind of summits? Like you know, kind of what what is the current the current temperature of 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 the United States as a foreign policy actor um, from your perspective? Sure. So I would say that if you if you look at sort of the the, the democratic core uh, of the post-war order, and and what I mean by the democratic core is sort of the broadly the set of advanced industrial democracies of which the United States is a leader. I think within that set, and it's important to remember, you know, advanced industrial democracies obviously just in terms of their their numbers, advanced industrial democracies don't constitute uh, the the majority of the world's population, but in terms of aggregated power, uh, aggregated military power, aggregated economic power, uh, advanced industrial democracies, they, they still do wield the, the balance of global power, even if they're not relatively as predominant as they were, say, at, at the turn of the century. So within advanced industrial uh, democracies, I think that the United States has made significant progress. Uh, if, you look at, uh, if you look at the U.S.-led uh, response militarily and economically against Russian aggression. Uh, the United States mobilized a really an unprecedented uh, campaign of sanctions against Russia. At least it's an unprecedented uh, campaign of sanctions against a uh, against a country with a, an economy of Russia's uh, proportions. Uh, if you look at the United States' ability to both uh, sort of reinvigorate existing groupings, such as the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, more colloquially known as the Quad, uh, but also to stand up new initiatives, uh, such as partners in, in Pacific Blue, uh, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. So the United States has made uh, an enormous amount of progress in in uh, sort of pushing back against Russian aggression, in contesting uh, Russia's influence on on an issue-specific basis. I think the challenge comes, and, and hence, I, I think the real critical importance of the work you're doing and the critical importance of this podcast I think that when you expand your aperture 
to say the G20 or to say to the G77, then I think that America's diplomacy becomes much more uh, complicated. Uh, you have, I would say that the vast majority of the world's countries, they are, uh, they're very concerned about the prospect of a new Cold War. They're very concerned about the prospect of an expanding gray power competition in which they become instrumentalized, in which they become sort of pawns uh, between uh, the great powers. And, and, and when it comes to how those countries, and I, I'm, I always hesitate to, to use categorizations such as the global South or sub-Saharan Africa because they're invariably reductionist. But, but if you'll indulge me those uh, reductions, I, I think it'll facilitate the conversation a little bit. Um, if you look at the, the dispositions of, say, the, uh, the, the, the dispositions of, of most countries, I don't want to say all of them, but I think if you look at the dispositions of most countries in, say, the global South, uh, they certainly don't, for the most part, condone Russian aggression in Ukraine. They don't condone uh, destabilizing uh, provocative Chinese actions vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, but they're looking at their hierarchy of national interests. They don't have the they don't have the material wherewithal and the freedom of foreign policy maneuver to, in many cases, express normative stances. And so, they, in order to advance their own vital national interests, which largely center around uh, advancing their economies, growing their middle classes, building out connectivity, and so forth. They recognize, and also uh, critically, uh, importing, uh, importing source, uh, importing energy. They recognize that they have to maintain basic diplomacy with both Russia and China. They might hold their nose, they might not want to, but they recognize that there's just a practical necessity. And the consequence of that recognition is that um, it's going to be difficult for the United States to corral many of these countries in the broad global South to align with its uh, postures on on Russia and China. So I think again, just to summarize. If you look at the G7, uh, if you look at, say, NATO, if you look at advanced industrial democracies, I think that the United States has made enormous strides diplomatically, militarily, economically, and so forth in strengthening positions vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia and China. But I think that if you expand the aperture uh, further, then I think that sustaining U.S. diplomacy uh, and sustaining unity against uh, Russia and China becomes a much more fraught proposition. Well, this speaks to the greater challenge that the United States is going to have in this new era of what is being called great power competition or great power rivalry. Your whole book is about this, that the United States, in many respects, has struggled to mobilize the coalition beyond the advanced industrial democracies and the Western countries, for the most part. And it has not done a very good job in the global South, even in the Western Hemisphere, its traditional sphere of influence. Before we get too far into the weeds, I'd like to kind of spend a little bit of time on some of the words that you use in your book and the phrasings. So we talk about great power competition and we talk about this thing called the new Cold War. While these are rather simple concepts on the surface, they're very complex underneath. And I wonder if you could take a little bit of time just to help us understand what you mean by great power competition and, and very briefly too about this new era that we're in that some are calling a Cold War, the new Cold War, how it resembles and how it differs from the previous Cold War with the Soviets. Sure. So, you know, I, I really appreciate your asking the question because, you know, words matter, vocabulary matters, terminology matters, and the nomenclature that we use to help us make sense of the world, uh, it informs as well. And it consequently, it informs the policies that we make. So, so nomenclature is very important. Um, what I find really striking about great power competition, and, and this phenomenon is it's not unique to great power competition. I, I think there's a discrep this discrepancy or this gap characterizes many other constructs. 
But there's a gap between the ubiquity of the term great power competition in mainstream discourse on the one hand and the underspecification of the term on the other hand. So at a broad level, uh, most observers uh, most observers believe the great, that there are three great powers and we can, uh, you know, we can discuss what are the criteria by which a country becomes great. But, but broadly, there are three powers that are, are referred to as great. It's the United States, China, and Russia. And great power competition is typically held to mean that the United States, uh, with its uh, sort of fellow advanced industrial uh, democracies on one side, is increasingly contesting on the other side uh, China and Russia in this deepening Sino-Russian entente. Um, and great power competition, it recognizes that the United States is relatively not as preeminent as it was at the end of the Cold War or even at the turn of the century. And it also recognizes that China and Russia today, they're far more able and far more willing to push back against U.S. influence. Um, the trouble is when you ask, what are the implications of that uh, conception for U.S. foreign policy? And that is, what exactly is the United States competing over? What exactly is the United States competing for? Um, can we envision steady states of great power competition? Uh, there's a lot of disagreement. And what I find is that when you have a construct that from its very conception or inception rather is quite malleable, quite elastic, uh, the interpretations of those sort of intrinsically fluid terms, they tend not to become more circumscribed as time passes. They tend to become more encompassing as time passes. Um, and historically, and, and we've, we've seen that pattern or that metamorphosis with other constructs. So take, for example, containment. Uh, when George Kennan articulated containment, he had in mind a very specific geographically delimited conception. Uh, but, con but containment, it was appropriated by his colleagues in the service of a much more expansive conception, uh, the, the execution of which saw the United States contesting the Soviet Union universally, or take the global war on terrorism. The global war on terrorism began with a narrow effort to identify the perpetrators of the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks, to identify them and target them in Afghanistan. But over the course of now over two decades, it's, it's evolved into a veritably global war on terrorism. And similarly with, with, with great power competition, um, I've found that since its articulation in the, the 2017 National Security Strategy and the 2018 National Defense Strategy under the Trump administration, the understandings of great power competition have grown stead steadily more maximalist, such that now it's very common to hear observers say that great power competition means that the United States is competing with China and Russia to determine nothing less than the contours of world order. Now, you may agree with that assessment. You may, you may believe that it is analytically justified, and it is indeed the case that the United States is competing more and more with China and Russia globally. The trouble is that when you have a conception when you have a problem statement or a diagnosis that is that sweeping, that encompassing, that maximalist, um, the question is not so much what should you do as the United States. The real question is what shouldn't you do? Because what mandate couldn't conceivably be grouped under that heading of great power competition? So, so the point I want to make about great power competition is there's a gap between the ubiquity of the term and the underspecification of the term, and the interpretations are growing more and more um, encompassing. Now, on the, on the new Cold War, I hasten to note that since in the book, I, I do, I do, I, I try to make the argument that the 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 limits of the analogy, in, in my estimation, outweigh or outnumber rather the the merits of the comparison. But I hasten to note uh, in the book, and I also hasten to note for the purposes of our conversation, that one can understand the the appeal of the analogy. So uh, the Cold War furnishes America's one uh, 
uh, example of post-war long-term strategic competition. And so when when you have an example, when you have sort of N equals one, uh, you are going to draw heavily on on that experience in order to inform your present policy or your present competitive policy. So one, I understand the appeal of the analogy. Um, two, um, just as the United States during the Cold War, it, it was facing off against an authoritarian external competitor. Today, the United States is facing off against two authoritarian external competitors. Uh, it's likely that this competition will be uh, long-term, systemic, multifaceted, globe-spanning, uh, so on and so forth. So you can understand why you can understand the appeal of the analogy, but I think that upon uh, sort of upon a more sort of rigorous examination, I, I think that the the demerits of the analogy come into uh, sharper view. So first of all, we know how the we know how the Cold War ended. The Cold War ended decisively with the disintegration of one of the competitors, namely the Soviet Union. It imploded in dramatic fashion. Now China and Russia, they have you know for all of their for their myriad socioeconomic constraints, challenges at home, for their increasingly contested external environments, it, it seems unlikely that either China or Russia is going to collapse in spectacular Soviet-style fashion. I, th- I think it would be safer for U.S. officials to assume that China and Russia are likely to endure in, in one form or another. And so the first challenge is, if you accept the proposition or the hypothesis, rather, that China and Russia are both likely to endure rather than collapse, then your task becomes not how to pursue a decisive or how to achieve a decisive victory. Your task instead becomes how to achieve a strained cohabitation. And the achievement of a strained cohabitation requires a much a much more patient, incremental, nuanced diplomacy uh, than than the pursuit of a decisive victory. So one is um, the type of diplomacy I think that present competition will require uh, will be very different than the comp- than the diplomacy that we saw during the Cold War. Number one. Uh, number two, I think that having witnessed the Cold War, which granted it didn't culminate in World War III, it didn't culminate in nuclear Armageddon, but it was nonetheless very devastating for significant stretches of the world. Uh, the vast majority of the world's countries uh, uh, don't want to participate in a new Cold War. They don't want to participate in a, a steadily more expansive great power competition. They want to advance their national interests, define their national identities, and exercise their agency outside of the prism of great power competition. And so they are going to exercise, I, I believe, far greater uh, agency than they did during the Cold War. Uh, a, a few other points. Uh, even though right now, it seems as though cooperative uh, undertakings between, or rather cooperative possibilities between the United States and China, between the United States and Russia, basically seem to have vanished, uh, that that reality doesn't obviate the necessity of cooperation. Uh, the United States, uh, despite all the talk about decoupling and, and, and disentanglement, America's economy and society remain substantially entangled with the economies and societies of China and Russia. The United States, uh, I would argue, will be unable to advance its own vital national interests if it's not able to maintain some baseline of diplomatic interaction with China and Russia. Uh, and it's important to remember that during the Cold War, um, the United States and the Soviet Union, they had very little in the way of trade and technological interdependence. Uh, America and Chi- the United States and China have a substantial degree of interdependence. So we could go on and on, but I, I think that there are a number of differences between uh, there are a number of differences between the Cold War and the present. I'll just make one last point, and and it goes back to our earlier consideration or our earlier conversation about why vocabulary is so important. Even if you so when you use the phrase new Cold War, even if you believe that there are many differences between uh, the quote unquote new Cold War and the old Cold War, when you use that phrase, you're putting yourself, and I, when I say you, I mean here at the United States, you're putting yourself in a frame of mind 
that inclines you to think about either decisive military victories or spectacular disintegrations of your competitors. So you're already putting yourself in a, in a frame of mind that I think is going to lead you down the wrong path. And so we need to be careful about what uh, vocab we need to learn from history. We need to mine lessons from history. But one, we shouldn't overlearn the lessons. Two, we need to be careful to recognize the differences between competition of decades old and contemporary competition. And we need to make sure that the analytical models that we're using uh, don't obscure more than they clarify. Pursuing, you know, kind of some some of the points that you that you were making in speaking with 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 the people that that you interviewed for for the book, uh, which include many, you know, kind of many people within the Beltway in, in Washington D.C. Um, what you know, in, when when they talked about a, a possible, you know, whatever kind of a, a when, when they talk about the, the kind of great power competition, and particularly for for the U for the United States to prevail in great power competition. What do you think they actually meant? Like, what 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 kind of victory are they are they envisioning? You know, kind of because, of course, the as you say, you know, the the, the previous Cold War ended with with one with the one op- opponent essentially collapsing. Um, you know, kind of which which essentially then erased their their position, their, their kind of speaking position, and allowed the United States to to impose a lot of kind of meanings on, you know, kind of on, on, on that, on that, the fact of that collapse, particularly seeing it as a victory for the United States rather than as a, a, an internal collapse, you know, kind of, of, of a different, different power. Um, so, you know, kind of like if looking forward and particularly looking forward in, in, in relation to China, um, the, do, do, like, are they thinking a victory looks like a, a kind of a Soviet Soviet Union style collapse, which I mean would be a massive disaster for the entirety of Northeast Asia. Um, you know, kind of do they foresee a kind of a system now where where China somehow magically stuck at Japan levels? You know, kind of like working. You know, kind of being like enriching the global economy without without threatening the US's position. You know, like what does the kind of realistic kind of like victory look like in in, in their calculation? My sense, and again, I, I you know, I, I can only go off the basis of of what I've read. You know, my my sense is that the conception of a victory is not a kind of, uh, it, it isn't kind of a, a sort of a binary outcome in which, you know, a country you know either prevails in war or loses in war, or a country collapses or endures. I, I think that it's it's not so much that kind of conception of victory. I think it's more the pursuit of a the pursuit of a steady state that is that you know recognizes that China is going to be a linchpin of geopolitics, but that is nonetheless cultivating a balance of power that is maximally favorable to the interests and values of the United States and its allies and partners. So again, it's a it's it's competitive coexistence. Um, and I think I would say that the best. Obviously, a lot has a lot has transpired since the publication of this essay. Um, the the coronavirus pandemic, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and and many other, and then this recent uptick in uh, in cross street tensions. Um, but I I would still point to uh, the essay that uh, the Kurt Campbell and Jake Sullivan published in Foreign Affairs in 2019. That to me remains one. I, I think it it comes closest to articulating what what the current administration's conception of a victory is. Uh, number one, but number two, to my mind, um, it's it's grounded in, in just sort of fundamental realities, and I think it really repays close attention. So the premise of their essay, and, and I, I point to it obviously because both you know you know both Kurt Campbell and Jake Sullivan are are 
uh, critical architects of of U.S. you know foreign policy. So Kurt Campbell is the uh, the coordinator for the Indo-Pacific on the National Security Council, and Jake Sullivan is a national security advisor. But in this 2019 essay, uh, they they talk about the imperative of competitive coexistence, or as or as I believe they call it, a confrontation, a competition without catastrophe. So one. The United States has to avoid armed. Con- the United States has a vital, abiding national interest in avoiding armed confrontation with China. Number one. Number two, um, there are limits to uh, what the United States can do unilaterally to shape China's domestic politics. The United States and its allies and partners can can influence China's external landscape, but there are limits to to what the United States can do uh, to to shape China's internal politics. Number two. Number three. The United States and China, they share a range of vital national interests. They do remain inextricably intertwined in economic terms. And so the question then becomes, how do you, how do you forge and then sustain competitive coexistence? And, and there are variants of this, of this term that have been bandied about. So whether it's competitive coexistence, durable cohabitation, what have you. Uh, but I would point to that essay. And then I would also point to an essay uh, that Kerr Campbell wrote by, uh, by himself uh, the following year, uh, I believe for Chatham House. And he talks about how great power competition requires that you think not about end states in which there is some decisive victory, but you instead think about steady states that are sustainable. So those to me, and I, and I think that if, as well as if you look at the uh, the Biden administration's Indo-Pacific strategy, which was published shortly before Russia invaded Ukraine, so it was kind of unfortunate timing for the administration. But, uh, but if you look at the February 20, 2022 uh, Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, it, again, it says, look, there are limits to what the United States can do vis-a-vis China in terms of China's internal politics, but how do we shape a balance of power that is maximally favorable to the United States, its allies, and its partners? So my sense is that victories may be the wrong word. My sense is that it's more, you know, how do we, you know, how do we maximize democracies' uh, uh, advantages and, and national interests in, in this competition, recognizing that the United States and China will have to cooperate on a wide panoply of transnational challenges, um, that they remain substantially intertwined economically, and recognizing that, you know, that China is going to determine its own internal politics. Now, the reason for all of that kind of that sort of preambular discussion is um, if, if you believe that you're going to have to coexist in, indefinitely with with a country of, of China's magnitude and China's proportions, um, it becomes difficult to define strategy. It's much easier to articulate strategy when you have clear objectives. So if your objective is, you know, we're going to go to war and we are going to deal China a decisive military blow, or if your objective is, how can we promote conditions outside of China and also foment unrest within China to bring about the collapse of the Chinese Communist Party, if you have very clearly enunciated objectives of that nature, it becomes much easier to articulate strategy. But if you aren't able to conceptualize victory in such a, a crystalline way, and if instead you're thinking about how to forge an inherently ambiguous cohabitation, it becomes that much harder to articulate strategy. Well, whatever you want to do, whatever the objective is and however you define it, it all is predicated on a dynamic policymaking process. Because yes. without a dynamic policymaking process, nothing happens. And I go back to the words of Kishore Mabubani, who is the famous Singaporean diplomat who was the longtime representative for Singapore at the United Nations. And he wrote a very interesting book a couple of years ago, which I'm sure you read in the run-up to your current book. And he mentioned something very interesting that I kept thinking about while I was reading your book, that the United States, and this speaks also to the United Kingdom as well, and maybe other Western countries, 
the policy process has become very staid. And he said that in the Cold War, one of the key advantages for the United States was that it had a very flexible, creative, innovative policymaking process so we could adapt very quickly, in part because we had some organizing principles that everybody agreed upon. We had the, the Kennan documents, for example. We had the idea that, you know, democracy was good, Soviet Union was bad, and that was, believe it, as simple as that, it was a very simple organizing principle. But Mabubani says today that the roles have reversed, that the United States is so bound by special interests, so bound by partisan rivalry, so bound by the Tucker Carlsons that beat you up so that the president has very little room to maneuver. And that's what leads to policies like the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, where you have no market access into the United States, that when the ASEAN leaders came to Washington, all that the president could do was muster up $150 million for 10 countries over five years, which literally sparked giggles in Southeast Asia. You also have policies like the new U.S. strategy for Africa. Sure, it's a good policy, it's a good strategy, but it didn't blow the socks off anybody. It was very evolutionary. It was very much rooted in the past. It wasn't something that was that was really driving innovation that people go, wow, this is incredible. Interestingly enough, Mabubani and others give the Chinese credit for far more innovation in their policymaking process because they have more room to move. They don't have this partisan politics the way that we have in the US and the UK. So she can turn very quickly and do big things. The United States can't do that because of the current state of our politics. And so I'm wondering, is the United States and even the West as a whole ready and even able to compete given the fact that their policymaking processes lacks the dynamism that is necessary in this new, this new era that we're in? Well, Eric, I'll go, you know, one step you know, further. I mean, I think beyond the, there's the policymaking you know, process that we can discuss, but I, I think at an, at an even more fundamental level, how can you, you meaning the United States in this case, um, how can you compete sustainably with China and Russia if your internal challenges are, are growing in number and severity? And if there is just a, a fundamental, I, mean, I, I hate to be blunt, but a kind of a fundamental sort of brokenness in America's uh, domestic politics. I, you know, when I, just by way of a, of a personal digression, if you'll indulge me for, for a little bit. So I began writing America's Great Power Opportunity in earnest in, in 2019. And, and as, as you've read the book, so you, you know that the bulk of the book is indeed devoted to discussing a resurgent China, a revanchist Russia, examining the contours of this emerging Sino-Russian Entente. And so when I began writing the book, I was focused much more on external uh, competitive challenges. But as the book writing process progressed, I became steadily more concerned about what was going on and not going on uh, at home in the United States. And if you just look at the state of politics right now in the United States, the the difficulty, whether it's the difficulty that Congress has governing on a bipartisan basis and passing uh, bipartisan legislation that is self-evidently in, in America's national interest. If you look at the way, perhaps even more fundamentally, that Americans of different ideological persuasions increasingly regard one another, not as fellow travelers, but as mortal adversaries, I'm far more concerned about America's domestic politics. And of course, um, the if there ever was a boundary between domestic politics and foreign policy, I think that in many ways that boundary has collapsed. So if America's domestic, uh, America's domestic politics, they have significant consequences for US foreign policy. And you know, one of the questions that, uh, you know, whether it's whether it's President Biden, whether it's Vice President Harris, but, you know, and, and they they very often make this point that when they engage their counterparts and they say that, look, America is back, 
their allies, their, their allied and partnered counterparts say, we're delighted that you're back, but for how long? What's going to happen in, uh, you know, who's going to win the election in November 2024? Who's going to take office in January of 2025? And who is to say that depending on who takes office in January 2025, that all of the progress that we've made with the Biden Har- with the with the Biden Harris administration won't summarily be reversed, and there isn't any good answer to that question. Number one, number two, I think that it's not just America's competitors, but again, a lot of those allies and partners they look at whether it's America's mismanagement of the coronavirus pandemic, whether it's surging income and wealth inequality, whether it's the ongoing uh, scourge of systemic racism, whether it's gun violence. We can go on and on and on. But I think that many of America's allies and partners, they they now are having questions about America's ability to regenerate at home, to renew the appeal of its domestic example, to renew uh, its 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 democracy. And there's that it, you know it's it's often it's often observed that when it comes to the United States, that the the power of America's example has historically been at least as important, if not more, uh, than the example of America's power. And so I think that the United States, in order to, before it can even think of it, it's a precondition for competing with China and Russia, it has to think very hard about, one, um, how it gets its own domestic house in order, uh, how it addresses some of the the challenges that its democracy poses to to governance, to cohesion. And and those are very, very difficult questions. I'm not going to pretend to have any good answers, but I, I'll just you know conclude with this point that even though my book you know, substantially is discussing sort of the the external picture for the United States, China, Russia, the Sino-Russian Entente. Um, I would argue that until and unless the United States is able to re- restore some semblance of national cohesion, until and unless it's able to to heal itself uh, domestically, then I think that a lot of those external, uh, a lot of those questions of external competition basically become moot. Then your book is already dated in that respect, yeah. because there is no evidence of any kind whatsoever that we are moving in that direction. We are pulling apart more. Yeah, uh, we are. The MAGA forces are strong and getting stronger. Mm. I mean, I'm reading a Washington. Let me just read a Washington Post headline here from you from August 10th. Sure. Historians privately warn Biden that America's democracy is teetering. Yes. Okay. So the whole yeah. premise of your book. And I say this, you as a representative of the foreign policy commentariat and think tank world in Washington, always put a line in there that says, we have to be strong at home in order to be effective abroad. But the next book really needs to be, in many respects, let's assume we're not strong at home, then what do we do abroad? Because we're not strong here. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Our infrastructure is weak. Our politics are, are toxic. And we're not going towards the, the, the direction of na- national reconciliation. We're going towards the direction of mutual distrust and animosity towards one another. Oh, Eric, you're absolutely right. And, and you know, one of the, and I should say, just, you know, you know building on your question, you know, one of the, um, you know, one of the critiques of my, and th- this is a... <laughs> This is a critique of the book that you know I've heard, uh, you know, not just from from friends, but it's a critique of the book that I I myself, you know, I you know, if I were <laughs> sort of grading my own book, it's one of the first critiques that I would articulate of my own book, which is that um, in order to gain, tra- you know, so in, in the you know for folks who haven't read the book, so the the concluding chapter of America's Great Power Opportunity, it set it sets forth eight principles that I I feel can uh, help to inform a more sustainable U.S. foreign policy. Uh, but in order to gain traction for those foreign policy principles, the 
traction for those principles is predicated upon, as we've been discussing, it's predicated upon some semblance of, of greater internal cohesion. And absent that, you know, so, so I agree with you. So the next book really needs to be, and I, I think we need to have a broader conversation about what will it take, you know, what would, what will it take? What would be required to renew that sense of cohesion? You know, one point that I'll make, I, and again, I don't presume to have any good answers, um, but one caution that I would, would advise is, you're starting to see, you know, you're starting to see some sense, and understandably, for understandable reasons, you're starting to see some coalescence around this, this hypothesis, or, or perhaps this hope, that external competition um, might not only stimulate internal renewal, but also uh, re- sort of imbue, you know, sort of imbue anew uh, the American uh, domestic polity with a renewed sense of cohesion. And I think that while it is. Uh, while it is perfectly understandable and perhaps even healthy to regard competitive anxiety as one tool in a large toolkit for uh, for stimulating America's economic renewal, for cultivating internal renew uh, for internal uh, unity, um, we shouldn't use it as a crutch. And you know, I've been um, you know, I, I, I've often discussed the work of uh, Duke political scientist Rachel Myrick. She's investigated this uh, hypothesis uh, very rigorously, and she's. Examining the hypothesis, you know, could external competition stim- you know, help to mollify political polarization? And she answers in the negative. And so, if so, we should not use external competition as a crush. We should number one, we should not hope that it will mollify political polarization. And so, then there really are two questions for you know maybe for book for uh, for, the, for the sequel to this book. So, question one is, you know. Are there ways in which the United States can mollify political polarization, uh, renew its its domestic sort of impart its its uh, citizenry with a new sense of, of cohesion and purpose? So that's question one. Uh, if the answer is yes, you know what are those policies? But the second question, and I think Eric, you were getting at this, is if the United States is unable to um, now, you know, every generation, I, I should say, you know, because I when I talk with uh, historian friends of mine who sort of take a longer view, and they said, "Look, Ali, the United States has been through many periods of domestic trial and tribulation. When when observers thought that its democracy was uh, irrevocably lost, when Americans were hopelessly pitted against one another, and the United States found its found a way to regenerate." And so I take that point. But let's supposing that, uh, as the expression goes, that this time is different. Supposing that this time there are certain irrevocable. Uh, flaws or, or, or breaks in, in U.S. democracy, then what comes next? What should the United States do? And that second question is the one that really, really concerns me. Uh, I haven't encountered any good answers. It's not clear to me that there are any good answers. But certainly, again, just to reiterate that caution, that external competition, it can certainly help to stimulate uh, certain legislative accomplishments. It can help to, to catalyze certain overdue investments in, in American infrastructure and technology, but it cannot substitute for an affirmative sense of national purpose. A lot in a lot of this, this of of the conversation, we we kind of we spend time at a at a very kind of high level, you know, kind of looking at, at the the entire world system. Um, at the same time, obviously, the U.S. diplomats are are dealing with global South countries that have very significant. Um, vested interests with with the, in the relationship with China um, you know including trade including infrastructure revision and and so on um, what do you think on 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 that like kind of granular granular kind of individual country level um, what do you think the United States should lean into in order to kind of maximize the it's it's kind of it's 
its voice in in those countries to maximize the kind of the 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 kind of agenda that uh, to maximize the impact of its own agenda um and mo- maybe more more importantly how do, how do you think the united states should mesh its agenda with the agenda of countries that are trying to claw themselves up a development ladder one that that most that most kind of of the us diplomats that would be engaging with those leaders have not experienced in their own lives um you know like how, how do you how do you think you know kind of american representatives should square that circle again you know i i find that the very often a lot of the you know i, I think that a lot of the pieces of counsel that I might, you know, recommend f- just for, for U.S. diplomacy, I think that, you know, they really apply not just to the level of nation states. I think they also just apply it at, at a personal level. So let's say that you have two individuals who are, you know, trying, you know, whether it's uh, friends or, or colleagues who let's say that they've had, you know, they, they have certain differences of opinion or they've had a falling out and they're trying to make amends. They're trying to patch things up. Um, you know, one of the most underappreciated forms of communication is, is not talking, but it's listening. And so um, you you presume that your your friend or your colleague is acting in good faith. You ask questions. You listen, uh, and not necessarily. And it's and I don't want to convey the impression that at the end of those conversations that you'll you'll see issues exactly the same way. But you'll you'll have a much deeper understanding, and there will be much more of a presumption of good faith. So I think it's just very important that in dealing with uh, you know countries in the global south broadly that. When you know when we engage with those countries, uh, just begin by again by asking questions and listening. So, uh, what are you know? So to, to hypothetical you know to, to hypothetical you know leader X of, of country X, um, you know what are you know what are the pressing policy issues on the top of your agenda? What are your principal concerns? What are your principal challenges? Um, you know how can you know how would you like the United States to engage with you? How would you like the United States and and allies and partners to 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 engage with you, to be involved, to participate, and and as much as possible, you know, leaving China and Russia out of the conversation. Now, invariably, you know, China and Russia they're not disinterested participants on the African continent, so they they will come up in those conversations. But but not leading in with China and Russia, leading in leading in or leaning in instead with just what's on the top of your agenda and how can we help. And so centering. Uh, centering those countries, centering those African countries, placing their concerns at the top of the agenda, asking questions, listening. And, and I, I realize that a lot of what I'm saying, it sounds very um, self-evident to the point of being almost you know, prosaic, but I think it's very important that you, you ask questions, you listen. And, and I think that just doing, you know, doing that, I, I think, would go, would go a long way. And, and I'll make one last point, and then I'll stop. Um, because the vast majority of the world's countries don't want to see a new Cold War. They don't want to be instrumentalized within a paradigm of great power competition. Um, when China and Russia do come up in those conversations, and they invariably will, um, I think it's important for the United States to lean more into the attractiveness of what it has to offer rather than the demerits of what China and Russia are offering. And that is to say, sure, uh, the United States will undoubtedly have criticisms of, of what of Chinese and Russian activities on the continent, but I think that it will gain far more enduring traction for its own initiatives if it says, look, here's, here's you know, we want to first find out what you're worried about and how we can help. Two, we want to center your questions, your concerns, and your priorities. Number three, here's why we believe that we, what we are offering is affirmatively good and can advance that conversation. And only then, perhaps, you know, sort of number four, if and when China and Russia come up to say, look, 
Um, it's your sovereign decision to to choose whatever country's initiatives you see fit. Here's why we believe ours are better. And if you ask us about China and Russia's initiatives, here are the concerns that we have. But again, we want the focus to be on why what we're offering is better. And I, I think that that kind of conversation or those types of principles, uh, not only within uh, not only within Sub-Saharan Africa, but just across the global South more broadly, I think that that mode of interaction, I think, would serve U.S. national interests very well. To the credit of the White House, that is exactly what they tried to do with the new U.S. strategy yes. for Africa, is they wanted yes. a more affirmative. They really downplayed the Chinese side and the Chinese influence on it. Regardless, though, it was interesting, a lot of the media coverage still emphasized the competition with China, even though the White House was trying to actually say, no, we're trying to put a more affirmative action and not trying to demerit what the Chinese are doing in Africa, that still came through nonetheless. And that's an important, and I, so I just, just to you know, interject briefly, I, I apologize, but I think that this is important. So even if, and, I, and I'm sure, I'm sure that members of the administration recognize that because U.S.-China competition is now such a, a dominant narrative of, of, of world affairs, such a dominant feature of, of world affairs, I think U.S. officials recognize that, you know, whether they mention China in a, in a given announcement or initiative or whether they don't, that China is either conspicuous by absence or it's conspicuous by virtue of its being mentioned. And I, I think that they recognize that there isn't much that they can do about that. But having said that, I still think it's important nonetheless that even if you know that the media is going to depict your initiatives as being anti-China or defined in opposition to China, it still is important nonetheless that in your statements, in your announcements, you are focused affirmatively and you are focused on what it is that you are offering rather than sort of downplay or rather than diminishing or, or dismissing what China is offering. So even if the media puts its own spin on those initiatives, saying affirmatively that this is what we stand for uh, is nonetheless very important. I take your point very seriously about listening being more important than speaking, but that is something that challenges Americans in general. And we need to, you know, we need to cultivate. I think we need to cultivate uh, more and more. You know, listening, uh, asking, uh, you know, engaging, you know, with countries on their own terms. And and I do think that, you know, we are seeing, in part, just because of the balance of, you know, as the balance of power shifts, you know, we are seeing, you know, more of that that shift in uh, in diplomacy and engagement. Uh, it's a shift that needs to continue. Uh, and I think that it's a shift that. Um, the more you are, the more regularly you are conversing with others, the more uh, the more that you're you know meeting them where they are. I think that the more you're going to be able to calibrate, refine, uh, adjust your diplomacy in, in real time. And and I think it's I'll, I'll just make you know one last point that I think it's also very important for just sort of for America's competitive equipoise and for the for the long term success of, of US diplomacy that to recognize that yes, China and Russia, relatively, they're more influential than they were uh, two decades ago or a decade ago. And yes, they are making inroads across, uh, across uh, the global south. But we don't want to assume that, you know, China and Russia are immune from strategic hubris. We don't want to assume that every initiative that China and Russia uh, introduces will you know, will be sort of a perfect 10 and that it, it will go exactly as as China and Russia have planned. Uh, they they have to learn as well. They make mistakes, sometimes very, very significant mistakes that undercut their own strategic positions. And so I think it's important just for our own competitive equipoise. One, you know, as, as you've as you have you as you've been saying, you know, Eric, you know, we need to ask, listen, engage more, but we also need to recognize that even though, you know, US diplomacy has its 
has its shortcomings that, you know, China and Russia, they're not necessarily sort of 10 foot tall strategic grandmasters. They make mistakes as well. And I think that just keeping that fact in, in back of mind will, um, you know, will help us calibrate our diplomacy in a more sustainable way. That is an excellent point. Very important point to remember in the context of the new era of great power competition that is there. And we highly recommend that you read America's Great Power Opportunity, Revitalizing U.S. Foreign Policy to Meet the Challenges of Strategic Competition. It is available everywhere now. You can get it as a Kindle audiobook, a paperback, uh, you name it, you can get it. And it's really worth your time reading. It's written by Ali Wine, a senior analyst at the Eurasia Group. And we are so grateful, Ali, for you joining us again to break down some of these very interesting topics relevant today more than ever, given the topic of Xi Jinping coming back onto the world stage. We appreciate your time. Eric, thank you so much for having me. Uh, always a pleasure uh, uh, to be with you in Cobus, and uh, I hope that our next conversation is uh, ideally in person. But if not in person, hopefully it's very soon, nonetheless. Hopefully. But just before we go, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing and to stay on top of the research that you're doing with Eurasia, where can they find you online? Sure. So I'm I'm on most of uh, most social media platforms, but I think probably the most relevant one for, uh, for folks who are listening is uh, Twitter. So I'm on Twitter, and my Twitter handle, it's uh, at... Ali underscore wine. So just uh, Ali underscore wine. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and would love to uh, to be in touch with all of you. And I'll put links to Ali's Twitter handle, also a link if you want to buy the book on Amazon. Ali, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Eric. Kobus, that last point that Ali made is so important to understand is that while we sit here and throw lots of darts at the United States, and it's easy to do. It is so easy to do because there is such a valley between the rhetoric and the reality in the United States. It is also important to remember that the Chinese have equally large valleys in their rhetoric and their realities. And the idea that, you know, just because we're criticizing the United States for their shortcomings does not imply that the, that the Chinese are doing it right. They're doing a lot of things right, to be sure, but so is the United States. And that's, I think, something that gets clouded in this discussion is that it's very easy to see the glass half empty on all sides. And and again, this is why these discussions and these books with people like Ali are so important is to figure out, okay, where is the United States strong? Where is the Chinese equally strong? And then I wanted to hear from you about your take on all of this from an African point of view and from someone who lives in the global south as to what you think of what Ali was talking about in terms of how these great power competitions are starting to play out. Um, you know, so speaking with Ali is, is super interesting. Um, and it's always, it's, it's really interesting to also to, to hear, to hear kind of accounts of, of these issues, uh, you, you know, from his perspective and from a perspective of, of the United States. Um, you know, I, I can definitely see the importance on, on, on both sides of that, but I, I, there's also a little bit of a, a worry for me um, in, and this is, doesn't relate to Ali specifically, but you know, kind of just, just for uh, in, in relation to the to the moment we're in, is that you know, kind of the the the, the for me as as a, as a person from the from the global south, you know, kind of who isn't particularly kind of invested in 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 a, a competition narrative between those two countries. 
for me, the 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 competition narrative is only useful in terms of in terms of the extent that it mobilizes resources that you know that that can be used for for pressing issues that also affect the global south. So, like you know, kind of climate change being a big one. Um, and there, I I tend to worry that that the kind of heat and enthusiasm generated by by the competition narrative in both in Beijing and in Washington. Because, you know, we keep in mind that, you know, kind of we, we tend we tend to frame it very darkly, right? Kind of like in terms of in terms of, you know, kind of are these two, you know, they they might destroy each other, destroy the world, whatever. But but we should also take keep in mind, you know, kind of like as you know, as someone who comes from from media studies, that one of the key ingredients of any media consumption is pleasure. And we should take into account that there's a lot of pleasure being passed around, you know, kind of social media in 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 the constructing narratives of U.S. strengths or strength and weakness or Chinese strength and weakness and how the two are competing. Um, so it was sobering for me to see when, like, when you know, a few months ago when when Ukraine started, to see people that I know as as very kind of sober-minded, uh, you know, kind of like like objective foreign policy analysts and so on, super get into the, the kind of fight, kind of, you know, kind of narrative of like us versus Russia and like us fighting for Ukraine and like, you know, all of, all of these kind of like the, the kind of pleasures of of solidarity, the pleasures of, of strategy and like suddenly like talking about, oh, what we need to do to like kind of move weapons, you know, kind of to Kiev and, and so on, you know. So so I'm, I have a little bit of worry that that the, the very kind of like excitement of, of a Cold War narrative, which we know, you know, kind of the U.S. has, has enjoyed very much in the past, um, will just simply drown out kind of global South concerns on these issues. What do you think? Well, I don't think what you're suggesting is going to happen at all. So the discussion here in the United States that I've been seeing is that the way to meet the challenge of the Chinese is to increase the defense budget, not to increase spending on USAID, not to increase the State Departments, not to increase uh, health spending in the Global South. The discussion in many, many circles is we need to be able to fight a war in the Western Pacific, take on the Chinese in South America, you know, confront the Russians in Europe. And that means we need to increase our already large defense budget that's north of 800 billion even more. And just, yeah, just give exactly a little bit of context. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know, so what it means is that... You. It's, you know, kind of like, it, 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 tends, to, it tends to strengthen, strengthen kind of... Um, tendencies that were already running um you know and, and in, in the u.s particularly a kind of a you know kind of if if you only have a hammer everything looks like a nail kind of kind of focus on defense you know that, well that, let's that is and and let's kind of use recent history as an example here when the global south needed vaccines the united states said we can't do it when ukraine needed 40 billion dollars it got passed in two weeks for weapons that shows you where there's a will, there's a way. And the United States prioritizes military options much more efficiently than it does humanitarian or social development or any of those. By the way, it also does that with its own people as well, that security budgets in most cities is the largest line item in their annual budget. So this is not actually something that's inconsistent abroad, that we tend to prioritize police services. And, you know, in Ivaldi, which is where that, that horrific shooting was, uh, the public security budget accounted for 40% of the city's budget. 
They're not paying for social services. They're not paying for infrastructure. So in some ways, there's some ideological consistency there. We don't do that at home, and we don't do it abroad either. But I think if Global South countries are thinking they're going to shake the American tree to see money come out of it, I don't think it's going to happen. Grenades may come out of it, but money's not going to come out of it. Yeah, well, you know, you know I, I think you're probably right, but then, then there's no point in discussing it, right? And then the Chinese aren't going to shower cash all over the place either. We've, known they, we've seen them pull back as well. So this may be a very different type of competition than what we saw in the past, where you're going to win hearts and minds with lots of money. It may not be that way. I mean, in that sense, you know, like if if, if one draws that logic to to its more to to, to its a fuller, you know, kind of more sci-fi kind of direction, then then the kind of entire discussion about a bipolar or even tripolar kind of great power competition becomes a fiction, right? Kind of because because any kind of like like Great power competition will completely be overwhelmed by just waves and waves and waves of chaos. That's that was quite kind of caused by by global warming disruption. You know, kind of so there'll be like just wave upon wave upon wave of 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 migration. Um, you know, and, and increasingly these countries like what 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 used to be called you know kind of great powers would essentially start receding and simply become little islands. And to the point that Ali made in terms of European concerns about the future of the United States and its reliability as a major ally, if the MAGA party comes back into power in 2024, European leaders have said, that's it, we're, we're going our own way. We're not going to do this again. And so in that context, the West starts to break down as an idea. And so in many respects, I think we are heading more towards the direction you're talking about, which is this multipolar, much more chaotic environment rather than a bipolar organized competition. And so with that in mind, I'm not sure that the United States is going to be as effective as it was in the Soviet Union, because again, it doesn't have this neat, clean organizing principles of dividing lines, of clear ideological differences, and of these principles as outlined by the Kennan documents, for example, which laid out a strategy for how to engage the Soviets. We don't really have a strategy for how to engage the Chinese on this in this competition. Everybody in Washington agrees that China is a problem. Nobody agrees on how to deal with it. And that, to me, is scary given the fact that where we are today, they've had two or three decades to try and figure this out, and they still don't know anything. And and I'm not suggesting that the Chinese have figured this out any better, by the way. I think the Chinese misreading of the United States is abysmal. They're equally blind and equally naive in many respects. You see some of the stupidest things coming out of the Chinese in terms of their understanding or their misunderstanding of the United States and American culture and the American people, which is, again, equally remarkable to me that we are so far into this relationship and there's still, you know, one's from Mars and the other's from Venus. So I I tend to go with the option of more chaos than than anything else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a kind of a very worrying, um, you know, kind of direction to look in. Um, but this brings up the point then, sorry to interrupt you, but this brings up the point then of, if we're going into this period of chaos, then global South countries have to do better at figuring out how they're going to thrive in this and survive. That's the context. They shouldn't be thinking about this context of, here we go again, into the Cold War again. One side is China, the other side is the US. You know, Just as, the, as it was, one side was the Soviets, the other side was the US. I still think a lot of the thinking in, at least in Africa, from what I'm seeing coming from governments is very much oriented that way. And I think that is highly problematic. 
Yeah, I think I think like they tend to assume certain kind of structural, you know, stru- structural kind of power blocks will remain, which you know we'll we'll have to see whether they do. Um, but yeah, you know, I think I think this like I agree with you that that for these for global south countries to set these kind of agendas are really important, but you know, kind of the agenda setting, you know, kind of is 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 complicated by the fact that that. That much of what they'd be planning for, particularly development in a kind of a neoliberal, kind of open international system, the way that we that we see it now, um, you know, that like a, a lot a lot of those assumptions might not might not kind of be valid anyway. You know, kind of like in in, in that kind of scenario. So so it's kind of like so deciding what national priorities are for these countries becomes becomes a very kind of complicated thing. And then the other issue is that a lot of these countries I think rely far too heavily or have too much faith invested in institutions like the United Nations, the G20, which the United Nations has proven itself to be totally incompetent and inept and useless in the context of the the Ukraine war and and what's what value is the United Nations going to be going forward when Russia and China are on the permanent members of the Security Council, and they're going to oppose everything that comes out of the French, the British, and the Americans. So it's just going to be this stalemate at the Security Council. To me, this, the, the United Nations is irrecoverably broken. It was built for a different age. It's useless in the current environment, and it's showing itself to be that way. And I'm not sounding like a, a typical you know, black helicopter, anti-UN American who's saying, you know, that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm just saying, I don't think that the United Nations has evolved sufficiently to be flexible and dynamic in its decision-making process is, you know, has an architecture from, you know, an era that doesn't exist. And why Britain and France, for example, and not India are permanent members is just ridiculous. And so, but I guess, you know, small developing countries, they have to rely on these institutions more because that's the only place where they can have a voice. But those, to me, those voices are going to be harder to be heard in this new environment. And we're going to see that at the G20, I think, in November when she shows up and it just becomes a spitting match between the Russians, Chinese and the Americans and everybody else is going to be, you know, relegated to, you know, to secondary priorities. Yeah, I mean, it'll be it'll be very interesting to see what what shakes out of the G twenty because you know one of one of the things about the G, one of the realities about the G twenty is you know as someone who's who's kind of worked on the think tank side of that of that process is that the G twenty is nothing but not nothing nothing if not well informed about the world you know kind of like there's all these massive architectures feeding information and insights and suggestions and, and you know kind of into the G, the G20 process on every single thing from like avoiding you know illegal financial flows to improving kind of women's participation in green jobs and you know you know on on all of these issues um and then you know kind of when when it comes to it like it it, it essentially gets very narrow suddenly you know kind of once once the leaders are in the room um, you know, and 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 it's it really is a pity because because as you say, you know, kind of there's very few forums where global South countries can actually have a voice. And for all of the United States's, uh, you know, kind of lip service to to global democracy, the UN is still the only the only space where all of the countries of the world actually have a voice. And they, but even there, they most of them don't really de facto. Um, and there's no move from the United States to make to make them or any of the other kind of multilateral institutions that it also has a lot of sway in more more democratic. Um, we're not seeing any kind of move to open up 
decision making at the IMF, for example, we you know kind of the, the, it's just not even on the cards. So you know, so 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 great. Like democracy is very important, but only at a certain level. Um, and you know, like global South countries remain voiceless largely because human nature is such that giving up power is not something that we do instinctively. So we're, whatever the rhetoric is. Us relieving control of the IMF, the World, the World Bank, the Bretton Woods institutions in favor of global South countries is never going to happen, at least willingly. Well, you know, kind of, I, I, I on this particular point, I tend to be more of a Marxist in the sense that, I, you know, kind of, I, I don't believe there really is such a thing as human nature, but I do think there is such a thing as capital, um, and you know, kind of, and and, and if and if anything one does see a kind of a transnationalization of, of capital happening, you know, kind of, which ends up having the same, the same effect in the end. Wow. First reference to Marxism in 13 years of doing this podcast. That is incredible. <laughs> it took us this long to get there. Anyway, so very quickly, just before we go, let's just kind of remind everybody of where we are, again, in terms of Xi Jinping's travel. It is significant when and where he shows up next. It, it's, it's important both in terms of international geopolitics, but also what it says about domestic politics as well. There are doubts that he would leave the country prior to the 20th Party Congress, unless everything is buttoned up, that his foes are in the place he wants them to be, that his supporters are where he wants them to be, that the economy is where he wants it to be, that the situation in Taiwan is where he wants it to be. He's got a lot of things going on domestically. It's unlikely, in my view, that he's going to go too far abroad. The next test of this theory is going to be in September with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in Uzbekistan. Will he go to that? That is a possibility. If he doesn't go to that, then I think all bets are off until after the 20th Party Congress, and then the G20 shows up in the, on the calendar, as well as the APEC Summit, where Biden will be at both. So again, the other question is, will he have a one-on-one -on -one with Biden? So these are all the issues that we're following in excruciating detail. So if this is the kind of thing that you're interested in, and if you've made it to this part of the show, there's no doubt that you're interested in it, then you would love our daily brief that we produce. It's a fantastic piece of work from our team. I'm just so proud of it. Go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe, and you can get a 30-day free trial. It's only $7 a month for students and teachers, $15 a month for everybody else, but it contains information that you simply just can't find anywhere else. And we are analyzing the Chinese discourse, we're looking at the Arabic discourse, also the African discourse, and then putting it all together in a very compact digest that you get into your inbox at 6 a.m. Washington time. So chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. We'd love for you to join our global community of readers. Kobus and I will be back again later next week with another edition of the show. So for Kobus Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afriquechine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic.